Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show, welcome back, listener. It is Thursday, the 29th of uh, September, as we record around midday. Important to get that in in case anything anything happens. Uh, joining us as normal, uh, Dan Jones hosting. Hi, Dan. Hi, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. Economics uh, writer and the most busy person in the EFT, Hermione Taylor, joins us. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. We've got uh, Mitchell Labiak as well. Hi, Mitch. Hi. How you doing? Very well. And then over the line, we've got our uh, our regulars, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hi, John. Always a pleasure. And Julian Hoffman. Hi, Julian. Hey, John. How you doing? Lovely to have you all with us. Dan, coming up on today's show. Yeah, we are starting in uh, the obvious place, looking at the fallout from the mini budget that was anything. But mini, certainly in terms of the reaction to it, uh, we're going to be discussing the many facets and the many consequences and possible consequences of that uh, shortly. Then we're going to be looking at our cover story this week, which is on buy-to-let and buy-to-let investing and the various difficulties that are arising there, again, in any number of ways. And finally, we are going to uh, look at a bit of company um, reporting as well. Our result of the week this week is Saga, which has had a tough time of it itself. So, yeah, we'll be digging into that. Lovely stuff. Uh, quick news roundup before we get there. So this morning, Liz Truss is on a, on a media blitz and she's doubled down on her tax cutting plans. Uh, the budget, as you will already know, listener, prompted a sell off in sterling and government bonds and put the markets in, in a spin. Uh, and yeah, more from Dan and Co., uh, on the fallout to come. Some companies' lines. Unilever chief executive Alan Jope will retire at the end of next year after five years in the job. The company said the board have started the search for a successor already. Uh, last week, we reported that LXI REIT had made a £500 million offer for supermarkets from Sainsbury's. This week, however, they have U-turned on the deal due to, quote, stock market volatility. Pub chain JD Weatherspoons has put 32 of its pubs in England up for sale. A spokesperson for the company said that this is a commercial decision. In its last trading update, Spoons lowered its guidance and expects a loss of around £30 million for this financial year. Russian gold miner Polymetal is back looking for a chair after Ricardo also resigned after only six months in the job. It comes after the miner cancelled its 2021 uh, final dividend, something long expected following sanctions against the Russian company. High Street retailer Next has cut their pre-tax profit guidance to £840 million from £860 million. Sales in the second half of this year are also forecast to fall by 1.5%. And finally, Spyrex Sarco Engineering is buying the US-based industrial equipment maker Durex International for around £320 million. Uh, that's all from me. Over to you, Dan. Thanks, John. I suppose we should uh, clarify that Spyrex still is, uh, is for a different Durex, the one that listeners might be uh, familiar with. Um, but let's, uh, uh, let's start with uh, the big news of the week. Where else are we going to start? Uh, Hermione, uh, as John said, is here with us um, again. Uh, it's always it's always bad news when you're when you're here, because it means some, it, tends, it, it tends to mean something has gone wrong. Uh, let's start with the, the very basically, you know, why markets have reacted the way they have to the mini budget. Again, you know, sterling bond prices selling off. Uh, 
what happened, basically? What, what triggered that, that response? Yeah, what a week it's been. Um, so I'm sure you'll have heard the government saying that their policies are designed to encourage growth and they believe that cutting tax will help get the economy back on track and they're aiming for a 2.5% growth target. The problem is that these policies represent a really big fiscal expansion. So you've got the energy um, price guarantee policy that they've already announced, which is going to cost up to £60 billion over the next six months, depending on energy prices. And then on Friday, they introduced a new round of tax cuts, which look like they're going to cost around £45 billion a year by the end of the forecast period. And so this is firstly quite a bad fit for the economic environment that we find ourselves in. So we've already got very high inflation and there are concerns that if the government is doing this huge fiscal stimulus, that could make the Bank of England's job even harder. There's also concerns that even though they talked a lot about growth in the supply side, are these policies really going to address any of the sort of long term issues that we're facing in the UK? You know, and, and are they going to improve productivity in the long term? I think the biggest concern really, though, is that um, the government's credibility is not high at the moment. So um, they announced these very expensive policies um, without um, any forecasts or costings from the fiscal watchdog of the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. They've had quite an adversarial relationship with the Bank of England, kind of repeatedly criticising it during the leadership election campaign. And then they keep railing against what they call economic orthodoxy. So all of that adds up to markets being pretty spooked by what's going on. You can make some criticisms of economic orthodoxy, of course, uh, but... Yeah, the, as you say, it seems to be the, the the credibility deficit, which is something I wrote about this week as well, has been what has spooked uh, spooked markets this week. Obviously, we've seen sterling fall off, and then uh, we saw the big big movement in uh, in bond yields as well, which we'll, we'll come on to shortly. There are lots of interesting questions, really, but the the, the first one we start with is what is the Bank of England going to do? Do we think you know? Because on the one hand. As you say, it's already in a in a tightening cycle. It's got to raise rates to in an effort to combat inflation, which it is doing. Now there's potentially policies which you know are going to spark more growth, or at least you know that's certainly the the aim. And, and therefore, you would think the bank is going to raise rates more. But at the same time, there are now given where market pricing is, there are big risks to the mortgage market, things like that, in terms of how high rates could potentially go or forecast to go. Yeah, I mean, this week, market pricing was suggesting some huge rate hikes in the future. So seeing rates going as high as 6% um, and kind of for kind of front loading that with a big hike in November. I mean, this could cause big problems in the housing market. We've seen some short term problems where lenders didn't really want to take the risk that yields might shift again between them offering a mortgage and hedging a loan. So we saw lots of products withdrawn. But then over and above that, there are going to be some really big affordability concerns. So lenders are passing on this kind of risk free rate. Can borrowers afford such high um, mortgage interest repayments? This has got some really big implications for the housing market. Um, we could even see people selling because they can't afford their repayments or buyers having to really adjust you know, their expectations, what they can get, because affordability will be so squeezed. Um, and that could put some very downward pressure on house prices. The housing market is a kind of a big part of the UK economy as well. And if higher mortgage costs start eating up people's disposable income at the same time as high inflation, we could see household income really kind of plummet. And that could kind of worsen any recession that we see over the winter as well. And this is really the, the potential, you know, crux of the problem for the Bank of England. You wrote about uh, in, a, in a separate column this week in the magazine about the ECB and Zugzwang, the chess term where, you know, there are no good moves available. And in some ways, that's what faces the Bank of England now, because, as you say, the housing market is such a big part of the UK economy that, to me at least, it feels like they really can't raise rates to the market implied levels because of what that will do to the housing market and therefore the economy. But the flip side, of course, is then 
That means inflation is going to be higher, even higher for even longer. It means more sterling weakness potentially if they don't. You know, we've already seen a lot of sterling weakness, and that's when they're pricing in 6% market rates next year. So if, uh, if the market has to have a reality check on that, then who knows what's going to happen to the pound then as well. I mean, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about the Bank of England having, um, you know, kind of difficulties having to try and counteract the government's stimulus. But things have got even worse for the Bank of England now because it's having to juggle financial stability and think about the exchange rate as well. Um, I mean, I think there's a, quite a strong argument that sterling doesn't seem to be very sensitive to what the Bank of England does to interest rates. Um, when the Bank of England hiked rates earlier this year, it kind of moved more decisively than other advanced economies, and that didn't really do much to help the pound. I think, as you say, it's maybe quite telling that even when markets were expecting really big interest rate hikes, maybe even 6% down the line, it didn't really do much to bolster sterling. So I think it's probably quite unlikely that the Bank of England will act to try and do anything to kind of boost sterling, because it would have to be very hawkish. I think the Bank of England might be concerned that a weak exchange rate could be inflationary, so it will make imports more expensive and it will kind of boost exports. But I think probably that will be quite easily counteracted by higher rates. And as you say, the bank has to consider now that if it does hike rates up to 6%, that could trigger some real sort of distress in the housing market. And some economists, so Pantheon Macroeconomics, are actually arguing that if we did see interest rates of 6%, the housing market effects would mean that inflation could then push below target so that that could actually force the Bank of England to undershoot its inflation target. So I think it's probably more realistic that they will let selling slide further and then rates will go to maybe 4 or 5%. I suppose that's indicative of perhaps of the range of possible outcomes here, the uncertainty, you know, obviously, if we were to suddenly flip to a deflationary scenario, it would be, you know, a few months away, but nonetheless, yes, it's yeah. still very much a, um, not what, you, what is being uh, anticipated right now. Um, I suppose the other, the other thing we should talk about, uh, you mentioned financial stability, we should talk about the bond market uh, episode, shall we say, yesterday, where... You know, uh, we we could uh, get into the weeds of liability-driven investment, but no one's probably going to thank us for that. But but in short, you know, a lot of these big moves in guilt yields yesterday were seemingly exacerbated by pension fund selling. You know, uh, ironically, these pension funds. Uh, you know, we talk a lot in the magazine about how higher guilt yields mean better situations for pension funds in terms of their funding position, but. They do also have a lot of derivative positions, have a lot of hedges in their portfolios, which. Uh, effectively hedges against, ironically, big moves in UK government bond bond prices. And obviously, that's what we've seen in the past few days. So in short, uh, all the people they have the hedges with asked for a lot more collateral on these hedges. The only thing they could really get their hands on to sell was government bonds. That exacerbated the government bond sell-off. And it created a bit of a, a doom loop then when they needed more collateral and they had to sell more and so on and so on. So that's where the Bank of England stepped in. But but what does that mean in terms of what, what has the Bank of England done there. I mean, I think this case just really highlights what a long time a week is, a week is in economics at the moment. So on Thursday, the Bank of England said so last week that there was going to be a high bar for amending their planned reduction in the stock of purchase gilts, and they were going to embark on quantitative tightening. So they were going to start um, they were stopping QE and embarking on active quantitative tightening. Earlier this week, they then had to do some um, very targeted asset purchases at the long end of the market, and they said that for 13 days, they're going to purchase up to £5 billion worth of um, long-dated bonds, which totals £65 billion. So having said that, you know, the, the QE was over and they're starting on QE, they had to move very, very quickly and take a very different track to try and restore some kind of order in the bond markets. That 
fingers crossed, does seem to have happened for now. Obviously, they're only doing it for a couple of weeks, but hopefully markets in general will have settled down a bit by two weeks' time, but who knows what, what will be happening by then. Let, let me bring in uh, Julian and Mark. Maybe we just talk about uh, a couple of things. Again, we could, we could spend the whole podcast discussing the, these um, issues, and we've got a lot of detail in the magazine this week as well. But, but I suppose when we look at it on a company level, first of all, we look at the sectors coming out best and worst from the past few days, potentially in the weeks and months ahead, from you know higher bond yields, lower sterling perhaps as well. Uh, there's obviously implications for all kinds of sectors, be it uh, real estate to you know banks, insurers, things like that. Mark and Julian, I don't know if any particular areas stand out to you. Well, uh, the obvious one, I guess, is the the insurers, which is sort of my nominal beat. Um, the, the companies took a real swan dive on. Uh, yesterday and then sort of cover, recovered a bit of ground today. So, so we're talking about the the life assurers to start with. Um, I mean, their, their problem, I guess, as, as Hermione has uh, explained really, is that they have to match uh, the length of their liabilities with assets which will cover their liabilities over the same amount of time. So and the movements in the gilt market have, would have affected them quite uh, quite badly. But having said that, it is actually really the indirect, it is an indirect problem in that um, it, it's the pension funds themselves rather than the life insurers directly that are affected by it. So it's, you, you do have a kind of Chinese wall between the two, um, although they do write their own their own business to a certain extent and take out hedges. But uh, that, I mean, the fact that they've recovered today is is kind of indicative of, of you know, the, the, the fact that the Bank of England has, has stepped in and there are no further suggestions that they're going to have any trouble uh, with with financing their, their hedges and their balance sheets. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was the most obvious, the most obvious um, company hit that people took. I mean, the other one, obviously, is the banks. How are they going to be affected by by long-term rising interest rates? So, generally, we're, we'd probably say that it's going to be positive for them. The, the, only, the only unknown is really how many people are going to default on loans or we don't really know what the impairment implications are of uh, you know, interest rates, particularly if they hit 6%. 6-7% seems to be the the cutoff point for, for a lot of people's finances. So it's, you know, we don't know what that scenario is. Although they have been planning for for months, really, that um, the, 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 um, the situation would get worse. So yeah, you have been seeing a lot of banks, in particular, putting more money aside. Uh, to cover bad potential bad loans in this situation, so I wouldn't expect them to be overly overly affected, and and they'll essentially benefit from widening margins as the uh, as the interest rates go up. So um, yeah, I mean those are the two the, the two most exposed sections. I don't know. What, uh, did you come across anything, Mark? Yourself? Well, just on that point uh, as well, I did note recently that um, we're starting to see a, a slight increase in loan delinquencies over in the US at the moment. And, and the housing market there uh, has come under renewed pressure as well. And to Hermani's point before as well, I think it would be interesting to look at the overall um, UK savings rate, because that will inform uh, the level of loan distress over here too. And sort of people need to uh, keep this in mind. And then yeah, what, I looked it up the other day, it's, it's the highest since 2010. So, I mean, that's going to have some act as some kind of a buffer, uh, hopefully going forward. But uh, non-performing loans, that's going to be um, a significant uh, part of the equation too. Uh, I, I guess uh, Dan was saying earlier on, you, you know, 
big dollar earners will sort of obviously take advantage through a sterling sort of fall at the moment. And I guess it's worth pointing out too that uh, consumers are actually uh, standing to benefit from a reduction in energy prices, particularly wholesale gas prices, which have uh, eased over the last uh, six weeks or so. But of course, uh, all that's priced in US dollars. Uh, and so that benefit for at least for consumers is uh, is, is going to sort of level out as well. Um, but it's it's perhaps telling that uh, uh, the UK benchmark, the FTSE 100, that's still holding up reasonably well compared to uh, its overseas counterparts, uh, because about 70% of the stocks uh, therein uh, derive a large proportion of their earnings uh, in US dollars. We should uh, we should probably emphasise that. Uh... Uh, the energy price point you, you just touched on, Mark, because there is a rare piece of good news this week. Uh, you know, the fall in energy prices has been quite significant. They did spike up again a little bit on the uh, Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. But but the fall, you know, compared with the late August highs has really been quite uh, quite major. And in fact, it is, you know, if they stay at these levels, it should really reduce the cost to the government of that energy price guarantee. But but I digress. Um the other interesting thing from a company perspective, again, I suppose it's quite intuitive, but I was just looking at a list of, you know, who's done best over the past week. And, uh, you know, best is a relative term. We're looking at, you know, one, two percent up here in, in most cases. But the likes of, you know, the consumer staples, Unilever, Reckitt, companies like that, uh, have, again, you know, a good uh, amount of earnings in dollars. They also, you know, so far have made a decent fist of uh, being able to pass on inflation to uh to consumers as well so they're still looking in decent shape there it seems yeah i mean these defensive stocks will always uh do relatively well uh, uh under these circumstances i guess i guess their their model isn't completely divorced through from energy prices as well um but you know We've seen a, a further reinforcement in in the sort of uh, swing towards v value stocks over the last month too, and uh, that's likely to continue uh, well into next year. Yeah, well, of course, we will be monitoring all these developments uh, in a lot more detail as the uh, the days and weeks go on, and we'll have a lot more uh, in this issue, as I've said, and also in next week's issue as well about uh, some of the consequences that are, that are really just starting to emerge now from from fiscal and monetary policy and the uh, the clash thereof, perhaps. But let's let's move on for now. Let's talk about our uh, cover story this week. Mitchell, uh, the author of said story, has been sitting uh, patiently while we d discuss all, all these issues. Um, the piece is on uh, buy-to-let uh, investing, which, uh, you know, is harder than it once was, and it was already uh, harder before uh, the prospect of even higher mortgage rates came through this week. Uh but, you know, we, we don't want to forget the, the other side of the coin as well, which is what this piece looks at, which is, of course, tenants. And, you know, in, in, the, in the, um, the context of a, a structurally, you know, broken or certainly damaged housing market, the difficulties a lot of people are facing, whether they be a landlord facing a lot, facing costs coming through, whether they be a tenant facing, you know, significant rent rises, maybe as, as those costs are passed on. It's a very difficult balancing act. Uh, and the piece kind of explores some of these um, dynamics as well as housing market dynamics as well, Mitch? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think obviously a, a housing market that um, functioned properly would be of an immense benefit to to buy-to-let landlords and, and tenants alike if you had a situation whereby, um, you know, tenants were renting 
because they wanted to, because they were really keen on it, because you know it was uh, it was it was one option among many that they could choose from. Then then buy to let landlords would be able to offer products in the same way that sort of any other seller of products offers products. But the situation we've got at the moment is uh, the phrase housing crisis is used sort of ad nauseum, but that that is sort of where we are. And because of that, you have a lot of tenants who are renting. Well, yeah, because they have to. And um, this in turn means that it's uh, being like buy to let landlord is is different it's it's different from um offering sort of other products because you're not um you're not offering something tenants uh necessarily always want but uh what they can uh, what they can afford and what they need so it, it presents sort of a whole host of problems that are unique to to that particular market and and yeah as we say you know right now landlords are going to be looking at their own costs going up they're also probably conscious that they don't want void periods they don't want to you know raise the rents to a level where you know, the tenants have to move and then you get the void period and then if you get someone else in, obviously the tenants don't want that either at the moment. You know, we are seeing certainly in London where we are some significant rent increases. So it's it's tricky. But uh, the piece as well, we, we do, I think, talk in, in a bit more detail about various aspects of this, both that kind of negotiation, but also some of the factors behind it, not least uh, regulatory changes, legislative changes that have that have happened and that could happen as well. We've seen a lot of uh, changes to the way that landlord taxation by to let investing is taxed over the last few years. And now coming down the line, we've got things like uh, the renters reform bill, uh, energy performance certificate changes as well. Can you talk a bit about both of them? Yeah, sure. I mean, so well, so the renters reform bill um, is not yet a a. Bill. Mm. So that's that's the first thing to bear in mind. But it is, you know, it's something it's got cross party support for a start. So you've got um, uh, it was there was a white paper in response to a government consultation, but it was seen by tenant groups and landlord groups alike as a very uh, informed and lengthy response, which would imply that, that a bill is on the way. And so a lot of people in the industry are talking about a bill, even though the bill doesn't exist just yet. Um, you've also got um you know, uh, Labour sort of supporting the exact same ideas, only calling it a renters reform charter. So, uh, so we're, yeah. So it, whatever whatever form it takes, these 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 uh, changes are on the way. So within the renters reform bill or renters reform white paper is uh, a sort of promise to get rid of um, no fault evictions. What are called? Well, they're called no fault evictions, but they're evictions via Section Twenty One notice, whereby a landlord doesn't have to give a reason uh, for uh, evicting a tenant. And this is something which already exists in Scotland. So we can often look to Scotland um, as uh, as an indication of what England and Wales might look like uh, when these sort of changes um, come in, because it seems like once again with this cross-party support and um, so much sort of political weight behind it that they are, it is a matter of uh, when rather than if. And of course, Scotland showing that you know it, it can be done. Um, then yeah, the the energy performance certificate that is that is something that's perhaps more well hard to say whether it's more significant, but more significant in the sense that there is a minimum energy efficiency standard and the government has every intention of increasing the threshold for that minimum energy uh, um, efficiency standard. The the real question is when they'll do it by. 
but um, but they're looking at increasing it to a C. At the moment, it's an E. So this is the uh, just to be clear, obviously the grading you get on the uh, the, yeah, proper, so this the is, property. Yeah, and and there are there are problems with this grading system in of itself. I mean, a lot of people argue that it's it's uh, quite haphazardly measured. I don't know if anyone's ever been in a house when an energy performance certificate is performed, but it is, it, it's very much like a sort of stick your finger in the air um, and you get a rating. So on the one hand, it shouldn't be too onerous for landlords to meet an EPC of C. Um, on the other hand, not being aware of the changes at all, um, you know, could be problematic. And there, and there's, there's, there could be a lot of um, ignorance of this uh, particular particular threshold um especially when you consider all the other sort of legislative changes landlords have to have to keep up with um which is a point made by um not just landlord groups but tenant groups as well i think i suppose it's an interesting uh, contrast perhaps with a uh, uh, with France as well, which the thing I keep I keep raising, just I find it quite in, interesting in a way. There, you know, the the energy crisis there. One thing they have done is prevented landlords with substandard uh, properties from an energy uh, what's the word from an energy cost perspective, prevented them from raising rents effectively. So saying if your building is not as well insulated as it should be, then you can't raise the rent. And this is in a way kind of similar like that you know if- yeah no, well, it's, i mean in a way it's um i mean i don't i don't know the ins and outs of the the french detail but in a way it's 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 more extreme because the way it should work mm. um and it's and it's the same for commercial property as well but if your property doesn't meet a certain threshold at the moment it's an e then you can't let that property at all let alone mm. raise the rents so it's the idea is that it is a hence the name it's a minimum energy efficiency standard the idea is that this this is the minimum a property has to be the scale goes all the way down to g but if your property is f or g then then you can't put it on the market yet you have to get up to a higher standard before you're allowed to rent it um so so yeah so it's it's i mean it isn't it isn't extreme you know it's 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 the the movement up to e hasn't caught out um hasn't been as dramatic as perhaps people might have feared that happened around 2020 off the top of my head but so that that movement that threshold has already happened and the market has had two years to react to it maybe longer off the top of my head but um but yeah moving the threshold to see should be well it should it should be doable it should be doable I mean we need it to be doable if we're going to meet sort of uh various other um uh, energy efficiency and, and net zero targets. So, and we should uh, we will maybe skirt over briefly the 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 budget changes. Obviously, there's a stamp duty cut, albeit that's relatively small, bit in the context of potentially rising mortgage rates. Uh, you know, saving uh, a couple of grand there. Also, some changes though, if you do have properties in uh, private companies, because of the way corporation tax increases have been reversed uh, and because of also the dividend tax changes. But you can find out more details of those uh, in print and online. But it does lead us on to uh, another point raised in the piece, which is that, you know, if you have these properties in, in, a, in a company, then fine. But a lot of vital investors are single property, you know, small landlords. And there are other players moving into the market, which could be a, a threat, maybe an opportunity as well. Yeah, well, so this is the thing that um, I thought was the most interesting when I began looking into this. Um, I first began looking into this when I was writing about um, uh, real estate investment trusts and why so few of them are involved in um, uh, uh, build to rent. But um, essentially, yeah, we, we have this situation whereby in the UK, 
the the vast well essentially the the vast majority of the market so we're talking 98.5% of the market is not sort of institutional build to rent capital the vast and a big chunk of the market is is really small time players we're talking landlords that have one two three maybe four properties um but yeah a huge a huge portion of the market whatever way you look at it is maybe they own a company but they're not the sort of institutional level scale like a pension fund or a listed company or even a large um private equity fund they're they're smaller sort of uh uh players you compare that with the US where 47% of the market is is what is known as build to rent there are these enormous sort of companies that that build um uh, uh, tower blocks and rent them out, but not necessarily tower blocks. Sometimes they'll build houses in the way house builders will build them, but then they'll rent those out as well. So this is the way the UK market could be headed. I mean, that's that's certainly what the UK build to rent uh, BTR for short. The UK BTR players believe, um, and they're pouring a lot of money into the section. They poured a record amount of money into the sector in the first half of this year and also a record amount of money into the sector last year. So that's what, um, whether they like it or not, that's sort of what um, buy-to-let landlords will have to compete with is these big-time professional players. Um, yeah, and it, it it's not... it's it, The government certainly is, is supportive of it, but, um, but of course, the, uh, the, the buy-to-let landlords I spoke to for the piece and also the, the tenant... The tenants and the tenant campaign groups I spoke to for the piece were not, you know, they they didn't necessarily think it was the best of news that we'd have a more professionalised, uh, more business-like sector for for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of which being that if you've got an individual landlord, it's quite easy to contact them. But if you're renting from an enormous company, um, it's it's a bit more of a bureaucratic process. But you have a more professionalised product that you're that you're um, that you're living in. So. It has its ups and downs, it, but it, either it, way, it, that's what the BTR developers want. Sorry, go on, Mark, what are you going to say? Yeah, Mitch, I was just thinking it, it, it falls in with this general uh, notion, theme, that uh, a lot of the uh, regulations linked to environmental policy seem to have a disproportionately negative effect on small business and, i.e., uh, small landlords. I mean, there's a, a obviously a political angle to this as well, but it... Uh, it would be interesting if we do go down that uh, US route too, because I know um, sort of fi financial companies are, are gaining large levels of exposure to the US uh, rental property market as well. I'm, I'm thinking here of BlackRock, but there are another, a couple mm. of other examples too. So, you know, perhaps we do go down that corporatist route in the UK too. But uh, I don't, I can't see how this would necessarily increase the stock of rental properties i mean surely these things just act as a disincentive uh unless as you as you float the idea as well that perhaps we just end up with a with sort of large corporations in, in that corner of the market it's hard to know whether it'll increase the the overall stock i suppose it's more about proportion isn't it it's you know what proportion of the market is going to end up um owned by build to rent developers i mean in yeah i mean i suppose i suppose that's more what it what it comes down to and also that 47% point i mean um savills are obviously very bullish about the idea of btr because of course they would be because they sometimes represent btr clients but they they reckon we'll get to about at full maturity they call it they reckon it'll be about a third of the market 
which is not 47%. And that's also quite a bullish estimate. And of course, full maturity could be years away or it could, well, it's more likely to be decades away. So there's a lot that could happen between um, then and the sort of BTR market reaching full maturity. But in the meantime, it's fair to say that buy-to-let um, buy landlords have uh, competition on the way. We should move on to our final segment, uh, which is our result of the week this week, taking a, a backseat slightly to the uh, the dramatic uh, headline events. But nonetheless, there have been a lot of uh, companies reporting again this week, some doing okay, some inevitably at the current time struggling a little bit. And one of those uh, was Saga, the insurer. And Julian, you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, cover the insurers and you covered this particular set of results, which was uh, a little bit disappointing and the market uh, reacted accordingly. Yes, yeah, they didn't do very well at all. Uh, incidentally, this is also Mark's favourite holiday company. I thought I'd just get that. <laughs> um, the, uh, Not the first probably... time you've, uh, you've said that. Go on. Well, I just, I just yeah, the old ones are always the best. Indeed. Um, I was just saying that the, um, the the problem with Saga, Saga has been in a bit of a tailspin for a couple of years anyway, because uh, the, the, the pandemic hugely affected their their cruise line business. They, they you know they they sort of take um, grey haired people around the Mediterranean in large numbers, um, but also the the insurance business seems to be suffering quite badly. And um, they had the weird thing about this result was it was down twenty percent. The shares were down twenty percent on the day, but they had actually warned the market in July um, that they had some issues in their insurance business. Um, but what they no one seems to have been prepared for the fact is how deep and pernicious these were, and um, what caused the the results to be quite so bad was a massive impairment they had to take on goodwill in their insurance business. So. Um, they're not selling new business in there. They're not writing new business as profitably as they were before. And um, it seems to be that they underestimated the extent of that problem, which is why they had to land a more than 250-240 million impairment on the results. Uh, and um, the market wasn't impressed, to say the least. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things. That, uh, the problem they have is that they can't, they can't charge our existing customers more. I mean, they the FCA um, outlawed so-called price walking earlier this year, and all the insurers have been affected by this kind of problem. But it seems to have hit Saga more than anyone else, which is kind of unusual in that you know the the situation was uh, predicted really. But yeah, sorry, Mark, you were going to say something. No, no, it was just in relation to that the the inability to actually uh, increase premium rates. Um, the, I, is is that fully mandated? Is it is that due to regulatory issues rather than than anything else? They didn't specify it particularly, but it's it sort of it can only be that. I mean, the the thing is that their 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 um, retention rate is quite high anyway. It was always quite high, and the suspicion is that they were able then to, to charge premiums to their existing customers, which um, is what the insurance industry kind of relied on, really. And uh, for some reason not being able to do that has badly affected how they're writing new business. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the suspicion from a lot of people is that it's a management miscalculation. I think that's, that's why they, the market reacted so badly, but and yeah, I mean, only time will tell. I, d I didn't, uh, I didn't have a look at uh, the comments regarding their, their cruise lines as well, but I, I just wonder if that uh, area of the, 
holiday market has uh, has followed the has followed the sort of dynamic of the aviation uh, sector. So where you've had a sort of a recovery, but it's been a slower recovery, less intense recovery than we might have thought since the pandemic. And um, I mean, there's a lot of there were a lot of logistical issues uh, involved uh, with with cruise lines. I mean, in fact, I, th I think that was that was the first corner of the market to be adversely affected by the pandemic as well. I, I can't remember Carnival. I think had a couple of uh, couple of their ships that were sort of held in port because of you know the virus was spreading throughout the ships themselves, and so I think they've had to take a lot of um, uh, clinical uh, measures uh, designed to you know protect passengers as much as possible and of course with a with an aging uh, well with a, the demographic that they target that's uh, that's an even more important issue uh, i would i would just be interested to see the bookings for for next summer as well because I, I i can't help think there's like aviation there's been some some kind of delay there for the recovery well, it's just entirely possible. I mean, I don't know anyone who's going on a cruise anytime soon. I don't know about you. And I mean, there's also there's loads of ships still tied up along the coast. If you, you know, from where I live, if you go down either direction, there's still five or six cruise cruise liners sitting in sheltered bays. So, but there, well, there, yeah. there's bound to be a, a, a certain percentage of people as well who just wouldn't countenance again after what happened uh, in uh, uh, during the the start of the pandemic. Yeah, I, mean, um, I mean, cruising is, you can take it or leave it, really. It's like being in a village that you can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> I know my... Um, in which cuckoos. My, uh, <laughs> my in-laws were occasional uh, uh, users of, uh, you know, the, the cruise holiday, but they haven't been back yet. I think to put some numbers on it, um, they have said, I think uh, cruise rates were about two-thirds in the first half of this year, rising to 84% in the second half of pre-pandemic levels. But they do they they do sound quite bullish about about next year in uh, in that part of the business, which, as you say, is maybe surprising given you would assume a proportion of that business, especially um, given the the demographics involved, would would be reticent, you know, about going back at all, really. But uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I suppose the other the other thing to talk about is um, inflation and the the, the uh, impact that's had on the cost of paying claims seems to have been another reason why profit disappointed. Yeah, I mean, the, the inflation is a problem for everyone um, in that business. Um, it's particularly things like cars. Uh, yeah, they have quite a big car underwriting business. And um, the, the problem they faced is that you know, the cost of secondhand cars has gone through the roof. But uh, if premiums aren't rising as fast as the cost of inflation. Um, and so they, um, but the problem is, I think, is that they're, too, they're smaller than... The likes of say direct line or admiral and they you know they can't offset that um as easily as those, those bigger companies uh so that has hit them as well and that's that shows no signs of abating and, and then unless they can unless they can get more business that's better that has a better percentage in it um i don't know how that's going to turn out really the final final question you know a question we'll be asking of a lot of uh, uk businesses even more in the next few weeks perhaps than we have all year you look at the valuation, you know, it's pretty looking pretty cheap on, on certain uh, forward metrics. It has got a lot of debt, but, number, you know, do you think this could be a takeover target, perhaps? Um, I, can't, I mean, it, it does have an attractive, it has certain attractions as a, a takeover target. I think I mean, the, the problem, as you say, is possibly the debt. Um, I, who would want, you know, 
who mm. would want to take that on as well as the company um yeah but my, yeah, my feeling that would I'm sure that would definitely end up in the two hard basket you know looking at that why why would you why would another company even consider it given the the debt over overhang it's itself it's the best part of a billion isn't it at the moment that they yeah that they owe. so it's uh, yeah i mean you if you're going to come in with a premium you're you're going to discount whatever the price you pay you're going to discount the get the debt aren't you so it's you know i would say it's probably almost neutral <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know i don't know who would come in for them that's i'm wrong yeah i think that's probably fair on that note we will have to leave it we have run out of time but uh, thank you as ever to everyone thank you to hermione to mitch to mark and to julian and to john and thank you to you for listening we will speak to you next week on another companies and market show goodbye Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.